Welcome back, everybody, to the Practical Woodsman Podcast. I'm Rut, the creator and host of the show. That's right. It's my genius which has brought this all into existence. In just the past couple of days, I've started getting over a really brutal bout of the flu. It uh, kicked my keister, let me tell you. So I've been lying around all week, moaning and groaning, sick as a dog. And uh, in fact, I'm still dealing with a little bit of the leftovers. This completely devastated some really exciting plans I had to spend out in the wilderness alone. I had these plans in place for months, almost a year. I had these plans in place for the week of Thanksgiving. Ended up getting a really strong bout of the flu. And so uh, not only did I not get to document my time out in the woods for everybody and make that into an adventure video, but now I'm going to have to reschedule all that and replan it from scratch. Well, in the meantime, I've been lying around dying, feeling like I was run over by an 18-wheeler, and I began to think about how I would have handled things if instead of getting sick right before I was supposed to go into the woods, what would have happened if I had been 30 miles back in the woods and all of a sudden this flu hit me? How would I have handled that? That would have been a really serious situation out in below freezing temperatures, out in deep mountainous terrain. So in this episode, we're going to discuss this scenario in depth, all about why it would have been so dangerous, what sorts of issues this would create, the proper way to handle such a situation, and some weaknesses that I realized exist in my preparedness for such a scenario, and that I'm correcting currently in the process of correcting in my own gear setup. But first, we have to do the musical introduction. You know, you know we do. So don't go anywhere. I'll be right here, and we'll pick back up this conversation in the next 30 seconds. Hang tight. stranger to the flu. As some of you might remember, I worked for over 16 years as a professional Spanish medical interpreter on medical staff for various hospitals in Philadelphia and New England. And I'll tell you what, the only other environment that can compete with hospitals as far as germs and exposure to germs and viruses are public schools. I found this out. When I left the hospital system and accepted a job in Ohio for a wealthy school district and became a Spanish interpreter for that wealthy school district, I went from the hospital getting sick all the time at the hospital to the school system and getting sick even more often. So I, I know a thing or two about getting the flu. Uh, you know, when you're, and, and I would get the uh, vaccinations and everything and I'd still end up getting sick. Well, don't make it any more pleasant, does it, when you do come down with the flu? I don't care if you've had the flu 14 kajillion billion times. 
every time when it starts to come on, you slap yourself on the forehead and go, oh, no, time to, to grab my boot laces and hold on. So I'd had these plans uh, to go out into the backcountry with my dogs, really excited about this, uh, come down to the wire. Nobody else was able to go with me, so this was going to be a solo trip. And there's an area that my family knows about on my dad's side. We all call it Monkey Holler. And it's this great wilderness area full of waterfalls and uh, really strange and wonderful rock formations. And I remember my dad taking me there when I was a kid, and there's this uh, water slide. It's a natural water slide just built into the rock. It's amazing, amazing formations and stuff out there. Well, I learned recently that the the government is in the process of turning that into a wilderness reserve. And I said, well, what I need to do is go out there and spend a week out there just exploring and just having it all to myself and really living it up out there for a week before that happens because once it does, then it's going to turn commercial and everything. Everybody else is going to learn about it. In fact... Uh, people outside the family uh, do not call it monkey holler. I ain't going to tell you what they do call it because I don't want to encourage people to go out there. But they call it something else. And so anyway, I don't know how far that off that is for the government, uh, you know, officially designating it as a reserve. But right now, no rules, man. I can go out there and I can do all my bushcraft and living out there in, in that wilderness area. I was really looking forward to that, and that's where I planned to go. And then the day before I was to head out, I mean, I'd spent an entire week prepping my bag and getting my plans in play. You know, I knew exactly what I was going to do out there. The meals I was going to prepare, I was going to set up a shelter in one place for one night, and then the next day I knew exactly where in this wilderness area I was going to go, and you know, so each day I was going to be next to something more spectacular for for the videos and for uh, as a journal of sorts of, of the experience for myself, but also to share with you, all you folks. Day before I'm supposed to go out, I I realize I'm coming down with the flu, and uh, it hit me hard. I was still thinking like. Tomorrow morning, I'll wake up and just see how I'm feeling, and maybe I, maybe uh, it won't be that bad. Maybe I'll still be able to go out there. Next morning, I got up, and man, I'll tell you what. I felt like uh, I felt like I'd been just dragged across concrete for miles. And then I did this thing. I was went into denial. I said to myself, well, you know, if I start popping all these vitamin C's and zinc and everything, I could probably kick this out in a couple of days, and then maybe I could salvage this trip. No, every day it got worse and worse, not better and better. Let me describe to you how I felt. I have to do this setup so you could understand just how serious this would have been if I had been out there all alone in the middle of these below freezing temperatures out far, you know, where you have to go on foot to get out there and to get back out. I, my energy levels dropped down almost nothing. I mean, I was shuffling around kind of like a zombie. Uh, did not really have an appetite. It's funny, 
for me, before I get sick, my for some reason I always get uh, my appetite always uh, grows, and uh, you'd think I'd figure out when that starts to happen. Then I'm I'm I must be getting sick, but I never do because my body feels fine. In fact, I feel feel full of energy. It's just that my appetite picks up, and this had happened in the couple of days before I got sick this time. But while I was sick, I had a I had a headache. Now this is something I've never had with the flu before. I had a nonstop headache from the day I started getting sick until about two days ago. That that's something that I've never experienced before, and I think it might be a combination of uh, the flu itself, just the, the its behavior. Because I've talked to other people who apparently have had this flu, and they've described it the same way. But also, it's been really dry around here. So I think no matter how much I was drinking, dehydration was a real thing. And then the sinus pressure, right, of, uh, of just all the congestion in my head, the pressures inside of my head. But that was one of the symptoms that I had. And high fever. I was running a fever about 102. So I didn't have a lot of energy for a whole lot of things. I lied around, and I just there, I didn't have energy for much, much more. Imagine that. That's the setup. That's how I'm feeling. I'm here at home. And, you know, I've got the wood stove. I can crank the wood stove, and I mean, it'll be 100 degrees in here real quick. All the blankets in the world, all my clothes are here. I can dress in as many layers as I want to, cover up with as many blankets as I want, get the stove going as hot as I want to. That's the situation here. Now, there's two possibilities I thought about when I come up with this discussion. Two setups, let's say. The first setup would be you're with other people. So you're way out in the backcountry, 25, 30 miles out in the middle of the mountains in the backcountry with other people. We're not going to discuss that premise in this show because as far as I'm concerned, if you're with other people, uh, there's not a lot to worry about. They can carry a lot of the load. Basically, you just got to stay warm, do your amount of walking every day. But, I mean, if you're with other people, you can have them set up camp, right? You can have them build the fire. You can have them bring you things, uh, stuff like that. So it's really, I don't think that setup there of being with other people is of much concern. But... Maybe maybe you think otherwise. You can let me know in the comments. No, today what we're going to talk about is being alone. So that was the premise that would have been true for me if I had gotten sick while I was out in the backcountry this past week. And uh, it's the one that I think creates the most problems. But, you know, this is not uh, something that you really have to strain your imagination to say, oh, come on, what are the odds of that happening? I'm, in fact, shocked that in all of my backpack and in all of my wilderness excursions and all of my wilderness outings, uh, that over the span of my lifetime, I don't remember ever getting sick while being out there. So it's probably not a matter of if, but rather a matter of when. And (laughs) it's amazing to me it's taken me this long to even consider the possibility and, and think about the serious implications of it. How many of you have seen the movie Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood? 
uh, when I was preparing this outline for this episode of the podcast, my mind kept going back to this scene in Unforgiven. This is after uh, Clint Eastwood's character has had the snot kicked out of him by Gene Hackman. And he's recovering. They've snuck him out. They've taken him out into the country. And he's outside of this barn recovering from his wounds. And if you'll remember in that scene, it's all kind of wintry. There's snow on the ground. There's a breeze blowing. And uh, every time I see that, I think, man, that would, that would stink. That would stink to be out in that environment. You don't have any nice warm fire. You're not inside a structure that is completely protecting you from the outside elements. He's just kind of out in the open, covered in a bunch of blankets, shivering a lot because he's, I guess he's got a fever, high fever, and he, he begins hallucinating because of this high fever and just because of the, you know, the condition that he's in. Well, as I was lying around here this week, feeling miserable, my, my brain kept going back to that scene in the movie, and I was thinking that's, that would probably be what it would like. Man, that would stink because I'm sitting right here in my house, lying right here in my house, with every comfort I can imagine, and I still feel absolutely miserable. Could not get warm, feeling miserable with all the blankets, under all the blankets, lying here in my house. Now imagine you're Clint Eastwood, that, the character that he's playing, in Unforgiven, and you're suffering, but you're lying outside in the open air with just some blankets covering you. So I imagine that that would be pretty much what it would be like, even if you've got a really nice highfalutin sleeping bag. Let's talk about your number one priority as soon as you realize you're getting sick. What is your number one priority? You're alone, 30 miles out in the middle of nowhere. What's your number one priority? Well, we could probably say it's a bunch of things, but... What I've come up with is that your number one priority, as soon as you realize you're getting sick, so this is before it's even really walloped you, your number one priority should be to start doing less. Start doing less at that moment. And the reason why I figure this is true is because nothing you do, you, you can't just think about um, how you're feeling in the moment. You have to think about what how what you're going to be doing is going to either contribute to you getting better or it's going to contribute to you getting worse. What would getting worse mean? It means that you run the real risk of pushing that flu or that cold into your lungs. We're talking about pneumonia. Now that is serious. As long as you can keep it out of your lungs, keep yourself from that flu or that cold, whatever you all call it, uh, from getting worse and getting into your lungs. As long as you can do that, then you're in pretty good shape. But once it gets into your lungs and you're out by yourself, that could be deadly. Even if you get out, once it's gotten into your lungs, it can prove to be deadly. It's like this coronavirus, you know, that we just come through. 
that was that was what was killing people. The fact that they they couldn't get enough oxygen. So even if they would intubate them, uh, they weren't the, their lungs weren't absorbing that uh, oxygen, getting that oxygen to them, and then folks' organs would begin to shut down. It doesn't matter if you can breathe if your if your lungs ain't taking in the oxygen. So pneumonia, serious thing. You want to at all costs try to keep the flu from getting into your lungs like that, turning into something much more serious. So that's the thing that I've come up with. Start doing less immediately. If I had been out there, realized I was starting to get real sick, uh, it would have been prudent of me to at that moment, and let's say that I had plans the next day, to pack up my camp and move to a different, you know, hike a few more miles and set up another camp somewhere else. Uh, my plans should have changed at that point immediately. I should have said, everything's already set up right now. I've got a place for my fire. I got my shelter set up. I've got everything set up here. I need to spend a couple more days here. And so my plan should have changed right then. Doing less. That means that the next day I don't have to break down camp. I don't have to do walking over distance. And then I don't have to set up a new camp. Dolians know how much work and energy it takes to set up camp and break down camp. It takes a lot of work. In fact, you know, when you're covering distance uh, through the wilderness, the, the walking is probably the least grueling part of the thing. It's really all the work happens when you get into camp. You've got to do all this setting up and everything. And that takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of work. So what I say is stay where you are through the worst parts of being sick. I'm not saying stay where you are for the entire week or what you know, how much, however amount of time you've got planned there. You don't necessarily have to stay in one place for the entire time, but you know, for me, for example, the first three days were absolutely brutal. the The rest of the days that I was sick was not necessarily you know like a walk in the park or anything. But they weren't quite as brutal and things weren't quite as uncertain in those following days as they were in like the first three days that I was sick. So I would definitely say you start coming down with a serious flu, uh, first three days, you want to try to do as little as possible. You want to stay where you are through the worst parts, which are usually, usually for me anyway, the first three days. Maybe it's different for you all and you know, I'd love to hear what you've got to say down in the comments or over on our locals group. The idea is to not overdo it. And that's probably easier said than done when you're by yourself. And everything that you think you need depends on you getting up off your keister and doing it. I would also like to say this. Uh, during this time that I've been sick, there was a day maybe three days into it, where I woke up and I felt great. Now, I was still congested and everything like that, but I mean, as far as fever, my energy levels, I woke up not being able to perceive any fever, and uh, my energy levels were really high. Like I'd gotten a lot of rest the night before, and my fever had dropped and allowed me to rest. So when I got up, I had all this energy. 
Well, what is your tendency when that happens? When you get up and you've got, you feel like, wow, I feel the best I have in three days. Your tendency then is to overdo it. You say, wow, I feel great. Got all this energy. Well, that's what's bad about that. Well, what's bad about it is that you're not better yet. (laughs) Your body is really not recovered yet. So if you have a tendency to do too much, then a lot of times what you'll end up doing is setting yourself back. So imagine now that you're out in the middle of the wilderness and you wake up and you feel you feel great, better than you have in days. Be careful. <laughs> Be careful. Still don't overdo it. Even when you're feeling well, let's say that you do, you, you say, I've got plenty of energy to break down camp and I'm going to travel in the direction to get out of here. My advice would be to travel short. So even if you feel like you've got the energy to hike 12 miles, 13 miles, don't do it. Don't do it. You're going to end up making things worse. What good is it getting out of the wilderness and getting back home if you later die of pneumonia? Right? you got to keep thinking about that. You don't want to contribute in any way to being sick or the illness getting worse. So that's why that those periods of, wow, I feel great, are kind of dangerous. You, you don't want to overdo it. You still want to treat yourself as if you are still sick and you want to contribute to getting better, not getting worse, or setting yourself back. So instead of traveling 12 miles, maybe maybe just travel three. Travel three, and then you've got plenty of energy still to set up your camp at a new spot closer to the exit out of the woods uh, without overdoing things. Think about the energy of building and maintaining a fire. I take a little buck saw with me out into the backcountry. And with that buck saw, I can uh, saw up a bunch of firewood, get a really nice fire going. But think about how much energy it takes to saw through a log with a buck saw. When you're healthy and not sick, uh, it just seems like nothing, doesn't it? Seems like you could just do that all day. But you are expending a lot of energy. And remember what the objective is. It's to do less. You want to you not, not overdo it. So now think about the energy of building and maintaining a fire while you're sick, trying to do as little as possible. Maybe... Uh, cutting firewood with a buck saw uh, ain't the best thing to do. Maybe the best thing to do is to just build a fire out of what you can pull up to the fire and lay on it. You know, for the first, uh, goodness gracious, for all of my life until about 10 years ago, I never used any kind of saw or hatchet or axe or anything at all for my fires in the wilderness. And I had some great fires, but my method for building fires was just to drag entire logs up and set the ends of them in the fire. And then as that would burn away, then I would just grab the log and pull more of it into the fire. And I would, so you're looking at like a teepee kind of thing. I'd have these long logs hanging out in all directions out of the fire. But that's, it works. You can get a really nice fire going that way. Buck saws, 
and things of that nature are nice, they're not a necessity. I'll tell you, they make a fire more efficient. The buck saw and chopping things into a you know, firewood size length makes your fire more efficient. That's the real beauty of a buck saw. But they're not necessary to have a really nice fire going. Uh, that method I'm telling you about works just great. So instead of using the buck saw and wearing yourself out that way, it might be better if you're sick for your fire and you're all alone to just pull things up into the fire and drop them there. And then as they burn up, you know, move the, the logs further up into the fire. If you carry, by the way, a five pound wool blanket, which I understand is not as light and not as convenient as carrying an 800 fill down goose down sleeping bag, but you can't get up right next to the fire with your 800 fill goose down sleeping bag. You'll lose that sleeping bag in a, in a New York minute, but you can with a five pound wool blanket, 100% wool blanket. You don't want it to be, you don't want it to be like 90% wool and the rest of it polyester. You want it to be a 100% wool blanket. But the good thing about that, if you think about being sick out in the woods and, you know, you're in your shelter and you just cannot get warm. If you have a wool blanket with you, you can wrap yourself around with that, get up right next to the fire and uh, lie there or sit there next, right next to the fire and let that fire bake into the wool blanket, bake into you and warm you up like a like a hot tater, you know, wrapped in aluminum foil. And so that's, that's something to consider. I think I've told you in my days of uh, being conservative with my insulation because I don't want, I don't like to carry weight. So in, in order to save on weight, my days of uh, carrying fewer things for insulation, fewer blankets, and worrying about weight as far as my insulation goes are over. Uh, on this trip that I had planned <clears throat> that I got ended up get, having to cancel because I got sick, what I had planned to do was take several uh, duck-down throws or blankets or quilts, as they're calling them these days, taking several of those and my wool blanket. And then I had a, uh, I have a pillow that is actually, it can also be used as a blanket. So it zips up as a pillow. It's synthetic, but if you unzip it and open it up, then it becomes uh, like a backpacking blanket. I really love that thing because a pillow is nice to have, but it's certainly a luxury in my opinion. It's not a necessity. And so if you get out there and you realize that your three uh, quilts aren't cutting it, well, then you can just open up your pillow and add another, another layer. Insulation works by layers, by the way. And I've been seeing this thing on the Internet. These outdoor guys have got this new product. It's like a jacket or something. And, and their selling point, their, their marketing strategy is stop, laying, stop wearing layers. I, I think it's a really stupid marketing strategy because layers is how it works. Layers are always superior, always superior to the thickest thing you can put on your body. So if you've got a really thick, big monster blanket, 
that is inferior to, let's say, four or five thin blankets that you can layer up. That's how insulation works. The heat from your body gets trapped between layers. Uh, Wool, fantastic for that. If you've got some really light layers of wool, like a wool t-shirt, a wool sweater, a wool jacket, uh, but they're not that thick, you say, well, that's not going to keep me warm out in really brutal temperatures. That ain't true. It ain't true. I went down to the bottom of Grand Canyon wearing a wool t-shirt, then I had a, a normal wool shirt over top of that. So it was a base layer and then a wool top shirt. And then I had a wool sweater, and the wool sweater was uh, cashmere. But all three of these layers were were really thin. You'd say, that that's not going to keep you warm. Brother, I'm telling you what, I was sweating my hoochie-coochie off coming up out of Grand Canyon. And it was freezing down there. Well, not down there it wasn't. Down there it was pretty warm. But as you were coming up, the temperature was dropping 2 degrees every 1,000 feet you come up. So by the time you got up out of Grand Canyon... Yeah, it was, it was below freezing. And uh, I remember that just those three flimsy layers of wool were keeping me not just warm, but hot. I actually had to strip, kept, I kept having to strip off a layer. So that's the way insulation works. It works through layers. If I have three down blankets, I'm already in a better position than you are if you've got one sleeping bag let's say of a similar warmth rating. My setup is gonna be superior to yours because you've just got one layer, whereas my three blankets create three layers, which means better insulation. So, you know, if you gotta carry a few extra blankets, you're going out into sub-freezing temperatures, uh, and you gotta carry just a little bit more weight, you know, I realize a five pound wool blanket, that's asking a lot for folks who are really invested into the ultralight approach. And by the way, I'm one of you. I'm also invested into the ultralight approach when practical. Remember, practical woodsman, that's me. Uh, I like to look through the impracticality of things and say, all right, well, I'm not going to do that. So I personally think that a a five-pound wool blanket, even though it's it's a, a brute, to, to have to haul around. It really does offer some great advantages out in the woods, especially if you get sick. Even if you're not going to use it as like your main sleep system, uh, there's still awesome things you can do with it. You know, you can lay that down on your sleep mat and uh, provide some insulation uh, there from the ground and you can uh, wrap yourself around with it while you're around the fire. You can sleep right up next to the fire. You can put it up underneath your down uh, quilts or down blankets. You can put it up underneath your sleeping bag so you can complement other things that you have out there with the down blanket or the, I'm sorry, the wool blanket. Now let's talk about some things you'll be glad to have if you do get sick while you're alone out in the middle of the wilderness. The number one thing is time. Time. Time is going to be something you're going to be really glad that you have if you're deep deep in the backcountry by yourself and you begin to get sick. Let me tell you what I mean. Let's say that you have you're you're planning on being in the backcountry for five days. Well, let's say five nights and six days. 
if you're planning on being out in the backcountry for five nights and six days, what you don't want to do is have people back home expecting you on that sixth day. I'm talking about buffer days. You want to allow yourself buffer days for in case anything happens, in case you want to stay out there a little bit longer, in case you want to spend an extra night out in the woods, in case you get sick and you have to stay in one place for a couple of nights and that sets you back on your schedule. What would happen if you don't set up any buffer days? So what I'm saying is what would happen if on the sixth day people are expecting you to come home and you don't? Oh, and you have no way of contacting anybody because there's no cell phone service out there. You don't have any data on your... There's no way to reach a, a cellular tower with your cell phone. Well... People are going to be worrying, aren't they? What about you're supposed to be at work on that seventh day and you're not there? People are going to be worrying, aren't they? So what I always do is I never tell people to expect me on the day that I plan to finish. I tell them, if you don't hear from me two days after I'm supposed to come out, then you can send in the cavalry. But I always allow myself one or two days extra. Even if I think there's no way that I will not be out by that sixth day. Even if I think there's no way, I will still tell people, don't start worrying until the eighth day. If I'm not, if you don't hear from me by the eighth day, then yes, start worrying, send people to look for me and things like that. That gives me plenty of freedom to be flexible when I'm out there with my plans. So let's say that on one day I'm supposed to hike 12 miles, but I get sick. I can't hike 12 miles. I can't break down camp, pack everything up, hike 12 miles, get into camp, set up camp, get plenty rested that night, and be ready to do it again the next day. I'm getting sick. I want to do as little as possible, so I'm going to spend another night here. Well, do you see how that allows for me then? That buffer time allows for me to stay in one place for a couple of days, even a couple of nights if I want to, and still stick to a schedule that won't worry anybody. So I hope that makes sense. In fact, the way that I use that buffer day, those buffer days often is that uh, maybe when I come out of the woods, instead of coming back to civilization immediately or coming back to my town immediately, where people are expecting me, uh, I might use that buffer day to get a hotel when I come out of the woods and then I can get a high, nice hot shower and everything. And you see what I'm saying? I don't come right out of the woods and then drive the six hours or whatever home. I come out of the woods. I go check into a hotel. I've got two days, two buffer days. I can do whatever I want with. Nobody's expecting me. I've got that free time to spend it how I want to. So it's not just good for flexibility in the woods. It's also good for flexibility before you go into the woods and after you come out of the woods. What's another thing you'll be glad to have? I'll tell you. I'll tell you, folks. A kerchief. A kerchief. I know that a lot of people ain't carrying kerchiefs nowadays, but I do. I always carry a kerchief with me no matter where I'm at. I carry one in my back pocket. Uh, some folks might call this a bandana. You know, it's a big, like, red-style bandana. 
these kerchiefs come in handy for all sorts of things. I've used them in the summertime to wet them in a crick and then tie that around my neck or tie it around my head or lie underneath of it, just have it draped over my face and really cool you down. You can use it to pull things out of the fire. It's natural material. It's cotton. And uh, that's what I recommend. You don't want synthetics. So if you're going to start carrying a kerchief, don't buy the ones that are synthetic. You want natural material, which in this case is cotton. But they come in handy for so many things. You can carry things in them. You've seen me carrying and collecting nuts and wild edibles in my kerchief. But in the case of getting sick, not only is it good for getting things in and out of the fire without burning yourself, but... The kerchief is going to come real in, in real handy for keeping your, your face clean. And what I'm talking about is snot, right? So you're hacking up things, you're coughing, you're sneezing, you're, your nose is running. Now remember, because you're in the backcountry, you're not going to have any access to a bunch of tissue. So the kerchief is going to come in really handy into keeping your, your nose clear. You're going to be able to blow your nose. You're going to be able to clean your nose out. And uh, as it gets messy, you know, it's probably going to take a couple days. But once you feel like you're, you're using it up, you can simply take that over to a creek or a stream, wash it all up, hang it up, even out in the cold, in no time, have a perfectly clean kerchief to, uh, to continue using and cleaning your, your system out with, you know, your, the congestion, clean, cleaning the congestion out of yourself with. This is a habit I got into during the pandemic. I just started buying up cotton kerchiefs or bandanas. And uh, now I have probably 12 that I keep here at my house. And I keep one in my pocket. And every time I I change my outfit, uh, I throw my old kerchief into the wash. And I put a new fresh kerchief in my back pocket and man I just they come in handy for all sorts of things it's uh it's become a regular gear item that I just carry on my person all the time something else you're going to be grateful to have are hand warmers I've got uh several types here you've got these chemical hand warmers and these I'm sure you've seen these before you open these up and uh, you expose them to the air. They come in these little packages here. Expose them to the air. You rub them and shake them. And when that happens, then they start to warm up. And they, they stay warm for 12 hours or something like that. Now, what? yeah, these stay warm for 12 hours. One good thing about these <coughs> chemical hand warmers is that when they stop putting off heat, and, uh, you know, you can reshake them and stuff for a long time, and then they'll reactivate, and they'll, they'll stay warm for a long, long time. But the good thing about these is that uh, once they're spent, you can just toss these into your campfire, and uh, they don't harm the environment or anything like that. They don't uh, explode. As you end up using them, then your pack weight gets lighter and lighter, right? It's fewer things in your pack, fewer trash that you have to carry around. So that's the nice thing about those. And then you've got these electric hand warmers, and they come in different sizes, and they're measured in milliamp hours. But these are rechargeable. So if you carry a solar panel along with you, like I do, then uh, as you wear them out, you can plug them into your solar panel and have them charging the next day. 
and be ready for you in the nighttime. And uh, the good thing about these hand warmers is that you can activate them and then throw them up under your blanket or up under your quilt. You can throw them into your sleeping bag, and those will generate heat uh, for you inside your sleep system. And I've tried these. They work really good. I can only imagine how great it would be to be sick out in the backcountry by yourself trying to do as little as possible and to be able to turn on one of these heat warmers or hand warmers or activate one of these chemical hand warmers and toss a couple into your sleeping bag and climb in there and feel that warmth being generated while you're inside the the sleeping bag really great thing I've, these are something that i have incorporated into my wintertime gear uh, as a as a must-have and uh, i've seen old hobo shoestring use these hand warmers not the electric ones but the uh, the chemical ones on his excursions and adventures riding the rails you can imagine he gets into temperatures and he's in and he's moving he's on a moving train if he's on that train and that train's moving you know 50 miles an hour or so you can imagine how much colder it is with the wind chill so he'll get up under a bag one of his bags while on the train and uh, shake up one of those hand warmers throw it up under the bag with him and keeps him nice and cozy warm so it's a nice thing to carry, nice thing to have. What else will you be happy to have if you get sick in the backcountry? Cheap methods for starting fire. Now here's what I mean. <clears throat> you don't want to be practicing your skills rubbing two sticks together or other such nonsense when you've got a 102-degree fever out in the middle of the backcountry. Now, I always carry a ferro rod. It's part of my on-person gear that I always carry along with the kerchief. It's just, it's like my Swiss Army knife, my keys, my ferro rod, my kerchief, right? It's something, a little flashlight I carry. These are things I carry all the time. Now, I was over at a friend's house the other day, visiting with him. He invited me over, and I was having some other people over. So we're there, and all these other people start showing up and everything, and there were some kids and women and stuff, and people were starting to get cold, and and so my friend Seth looks over at me and he goes, oh, I know what we can do. Rut here, my friend Rut, can get a fire going anywhere. He's like a master fire starter. So, hey, Rut, why don't you get a fire going for us? Well, gum, if I had known that Seth was going to have me make a fire, then I would have brought the simplest way to get a fire going. Like I would have brought the tinder, I would have brought matches or a lighter or something. But no, all I had in my pocket was my ferro rod. And so while I was able to get a fire going, it wasn't really something that I wanted to do. I it wasn't expecting to be tasked with that. And, uh, you know, I had kids running all around me. I had people trying to quote-unquote help with the fire, throwing crap on the fire that was when the fire was not ready to go. And uh, so, you know, I was trying to be diplomatic about the whole thing. Yeah, you kids, stay back away here. And, uh with the adults, is a little bit more. I had to be even a little bit more diplomatic. Why don't we set that aside? Uh, I don't think the fire's ready for that. But that's the sort of thing you'll run into. Where yes, I can I can get a fire started anywhere. But sometimes it might take an hour of preparation for me to get the fire going. And all of these people want a fire right now. They're waiting for me to get the fire going right now. So all I had was a ferro rod. 
I mean, I did not have any tender or anything whatsoever. So I actually had to go out, get the tender, prepare the uh, kindling and all these things before I then finally got the fire going. It took, you know, 30 minutes. Whereas if he had told me, hey, we're going to have a fire, I'll have you get a fire going once you get here, then I would have just taken a lighter and some tinder. A lot easier. I would have had it done in five minutes. Not even five minutes. I would have done in two minutes. So it's not a matter of can you. Of course I can. It's a matter of how fast or how much energy do I want to put into this. Remember, when you're sick and you're running 102 degree fever, it's not the time to be out there rubbing sticks together, building yourself a uh, bow drill and all this stupid stuff. When you're sick, you feel miserable, you don't want to be striking a ferro rod, really, unless you have to, and unless you got the tender there. Ferro rod is just as an effective way of getting anything started, uh, getting a fire started as matches or anything like that, if you've got the tender. But what I'm going to say is that you'll be happy if you're sick out in the woods to not have to spend 30 minutes building a fire if you can have a cheat method. And so what I'm holding up here for the camera, for those watching, it's just an electrical lighter. It's got this thing that extends. And then, can you see that? Can you hear that in the microphone? That's a little electric lighter. And with that, I could get a fire going in just a couple minutes and not have to spend around, you know, sit around striking ferro rods and (laughs) doing all that stuff just because it looks good. What other things are you going to be happy to have with you? Salt. In my opinion, gargling salt water, hot salt water. So heating up some water, getting it about as hot as you can stand, then dumping tons of salt into it and gargling that entire cup of hot salt water is probably the best remedy, not just home remedy, but best remedy period for the flu I was dating a girl long time ago. I think I was 19. Now, this was something every time we'd get sick at home, it was the first thing my dad would have us do. Gargle salt, hot salt water. It's effective. It really is effective. Uh, but I, this girl I was dating, she was uh, in school to be a lab, some kind of medical lab person. And she says, do you know why that works so well? I said, no, I really don't. She said, if you uh, look at that under a microscope, the salt water just immediately kills all of those germs. So it works, and you're going to be glad that you have it. That's, by the way, that's why uh, chicken noodle soup is so effective. Mostly it's because of the salts and stuff in the broth, but also because your body needs that, those calories. So make sure that you've got plenty of salt with you, not just a not just enough to slightly season food with, but enough that you can dump into a uh, cup of hot water and gargle. This is my toiletries slash medicine bag that I take into the backcountry with me for those of you watching the video. What medicines do I specifically carry in here? I carry aspirin, excedrin, and Aleve. And I'm going to tell you what each of these things excel at. So I just carry them in the same pill bottle there. And I'll tell you the uses for me anyway. Uh, One thing I'm going to start carrying is ibuprofen. And it's not something that I've uh, traditionally carried in my 
medicine pouch or toiletry bag. But ibuprofen, I have discovered, is the best thing for inflammation. Now, why is that important? It's important because most of your discomfort when you're snotty and congested, congested comes from the inflammation going on in your throat, in your head, in your nasal cat areas. But it also controls fever real nice. So I have not found anything. Well, you can take other medicines. For example, you can take Tylenol. You can take naproxen. And that does do a good job of bringing your fever down. But what it does not do as well as ibuprofen is uh, control the inflammation. It's really the inflammation I've discovered. If you can take something to bring the inflammation down, oh my goodness, the relief is significant. So in my opinion... Ibuprofen is the thing for that. You're snotty, you're congested, you're miserable that way. Take ibuprofen. That'll bring your fever down. That'll control inflammation going on inside of yourself that you may not even be aware of. I carry a leave. A leave is what we Americans refer to as uh, naproxen. It's just the brand name of uh, a brand name for naproxen. <clears throat> what I've discovered that Aleve is, excels at is for general body cramps, talking aches and pains. So, for example, I hike all day, 15 miles up and down these mountains. At the end of the day, my body's aching, my back aches, my legs are aching. Uh, that's when I take Aleve. I, I find that it is excellent for cramps, general aches and pains in the body so and by the way if you disagree with me on these things be sure to let us know on our locals group over there at thepracticalwoodsman.locals.com or within the comments here wherever you're watching or listening to this but anyway as a review for inflammation and bringing down fever i like ibuprofen for body cramps aches back pain i like aleve or naproxen Excedrin is something I specifically take for headaches and migraines. It also dulls sore throat pain and and all that stuff. But like I say, I don't think anything dulls sore sore throat pain and inflammation like ibuprofen. So Excedrin is just Tylenol, aspirin, and caffeine. So it's all contained in the pill. So if a headache, toothache... Something like that is specifically what you're suffering from. I think Excedrin is the thing. And then I carry aspirin. The reason I carry aspirin is because it's my preference. Uh, aspirin, it seems to me, is the the safest of all of these things. And because it seems like the safest to me, the safest, I, I don't like to take <coughs> medicine, <laughs> to be honest with you. But because <coughs> I don't like to take medicine, often... I will try to do what I can with aspirin. And if aspirin ain't cutting it, then I will uh, resort to ibuprofen, Aleve, etc. Related to aspirin, uh, and the thing I really like is Alka-Seltzer. Now, I don't know if you folks have Alka-Seltzer outside the United States, but the good thing about Alka-Seltzer is that uh, they come in these capsules, or tablets, really. And you drop the tablets into your cup, and then you pour some water over top of them, and they fizz. And so then you just drink 
this concoction. What I've learned about uh, Alka-Seltzer is that its effects hit real fast because you're drinking it like a, a drink. So I really like Alka-Seltzer, which basically is just aspirin. But I like it. I like that delivery method. It soothes your throat when it's going down. Uh, it controls heartburn, stuff like that, but it also takes away pains. Now, um, here's another thing I think is it would be nice for everybody to start carrying in the wintertime are just like these capsules. These are like severe cold and flu capsules. So you can carry these, and, uh, and then they have, they're a concoction of things. So they're like an expectorant. They, uh, they bring your fever down. They control the symptoms of flu. Yeah, so I think most of you will know what I'm talking about. These are specifically for, like, severe cold and flu capsules, liquid capsules, and uh, so those would be really nice to have. I was popping a bunch of these while I was feeling my worst, and they were helping. And, you know, they're not curing you. They're just controlling the symptoms of <clears throat> the flu. Sometimes that's about all you need to just get through a day, right? Next thing you want to make sure that you'd uh, be happy to have is uh, diarrhea control pills. So that's something I always carry here in my toiletry slash medicine bag. Yeah, so there's my diarrhea tablets, the anti-diarrheal loperamide, two milligrams loperamide. So that that's what I carry for diarrhea. Now... I don't usually get diarrhea with the flu, but it's something nice to have. It's something that I carry all the time when I'm out in the woods, not just when I'm, not just in the winter time when I'm worried about catching the flu. By the way, here's my Alka-Seltzer tablets. They come in these packets. I'll tear one open here to show you what they look like. This one's all broke up, but you see they come they come in these tablets and then they fizz when you pour them when you put them into a cup of water. What else will you be happy to have if you get sick out in the backcountry? Honey. Honey ain't just for soothing your throat. Honey contains a mix of amino acids, vitamins, minerals, iron, zinc, and antioxidants. Honey is also used as an anti-inflammatory. So imagine you're sipping a hot tea with your ibuprofen. They're really going to help you feel a lot better. It's an antioxidant. It's an antibacterial agent. It's a cough suppressant. Studies suggest that honey might offer antidepressant, anticonvulsant, and anti-anxiety benefits. In some studies, honey has been shown to help prevent memory disorders. So there you go. Magic ingredient uh, for any kit is honey. And the information I just shared with you come from the Mayo Clinic. So honey is always a nice thing to have. Uh, I realize that it, it adds weight to a pack, but I'll tell you, if you get sick out in the middle of the backcountry, you won't be sad that you carried it. It really comes in handy. So while it's soothing your throat, it's providing benefits like um, uh, its antibacterial properties, anti-inflammatory properties, and things like that. Now the next thing you're going to be glad you had... <clears throat> And I, I never see anybody else talking about this, but this is an absolute permanent part of my pack all year round. I'm never without it in the woods. 
Uh, I've got it in my emergency pack. I've got these everywhere. Are buoyant cubes. Buoyant cubes. So I just throw throw some of them into a, a baggie, and I carry buoyant cubes with me everywhere. Chicken and beef buoyant cubes. And I'm surprised that, that I don't hear other woodsmen or you know people doing this talking about how important buoyant cubes are. Uh, <clears throat> for one thing, remember how the salt affects you and how uh, healing salt is just by itself. Well, that's primarily what these buoyant cubes are. You can get buoyant as a powder or you can get, get them in these cubes. Let me tell you, these cubes are, are much better than the powder because it takes an awful lot of powder to create a broth or a stew, uh, whereas just a couple of these buoyant cubes, because they're so condensed, offer the same amount in a much tighter, smaller package. So, you know, maybe you should throw a bunch of buoyant cubes into a little pack and just carry them with you all the time. I use them to make stew. When I'm out in the backcountry, I call it practical woodsman stew. Basically, it's just buoyant cubes with vegetables and meat. It can be any combination of vegetables and meat, along with a couple buoyant cubes, hot water. You let that stew over the fire, campfire for a while, and then you have a delicious, savory stew. Think about how sick you and miserable you'd be feeling and how you just drop a bouillon cube into a cup of hot water, let that dissolve in that hot water, and then you've got this delicious, warming, healing broth to sip on around camp while you're dealing with the flu. Bouillon cubes. I, I can't, can't tell you how important they are, but if you want to make a soup or a stew using these bouillon cubes, all it takes is taters, onions, carrots, celery, meats, whatever you're carrying. And, uh, you know, a single tater can go a long way. Just a couple bouillon cubes can go a long way. A single onion doesn't take up much space or weight in a pack. A carrot or two. Some celery. These things can take some real abuse. I particularly like things that can take abuse in my pack, and trust me, a tater can take abuse, an onion can take abuse, a carrot can take abuse. And then let's say that uh, it's uh, summertime and all you've got is beef jerky. Toss that beef jerky in there and you kind of end up with a real nice stew. But the good thing about working, uh, being out in the wintertime is that anything below 40 degrees Fahrenheit, or that is to say four point, about four and a half degrees Celsius, anything below that, you can take raw. So you can take all the raw meat you want. When I go out in the wintertime, this time of year, I always carry bacon and a slab of pork. Any cut, I don't care. Just some slab of pork. I wrap it, I take it out with me, and I use it in a multitude of ways. I can skewer it and cook it right over my campfire, or I can chop it up, throw it into my stew. I, I like flexibility in my approach to things, but you're going to really enjoy a soup or a stew if you're feeling sick. It's going to warm you up. It's going to soothe your throat. All the salts in there is going to help heal you and uh, help you get better. Remember, you want to do what you can to contribute to getting better. Teas. 
I always carry teas with me. Now, in a pinch, if you're in a forest in the wintertime, you're in a, a pine forest, well, then you can make pine needle tea. Or I'm pretty sure everybody knows what pine needle tea is. But if you don't, you just jam a bunch of pine needles into a cup and boil that, and then you get pine needle tea. It's got a lot of vitamin C in it. <clears throat> the tea I growed up making in my family was a sassafras tea. We were surrounded by tons and tons of sassafras. <clears throat> and I love sassafras tea. Something I've learned, though, and, per- well, let's say this. Around these parts, some of the old-timers, they like to get, they like to make their sassafras tea out of an, a mature sassafras tree root, which means digging deep down, finding a great big root, and hacking that thing up and pulling up out, that up out of the ground. That's not the way I grew up doing it. The way I grew up doing it was we would uh, make sassafras tea out of young sassafras trees. So we would find sassafras saplings. <clears throat> then you can reach down, grab the sapling by the base real tight, and pull up and often get the full root of that sassafras sapling. And we would make tea out of the sassafras sapling root. <clears throat> so there's two different ways of doing it. That's the way I did it. And I hate hacking up beautiful grown trees. I, I hate doing that. Whereas if you've got a million saplings growing everywhere and you pull up a few of them, well, then you don't feel like you're raping the forest. <clears throat> it's also a lot easier to do. But what I will say is that in the wintertime, it is infinitely difficult to accurately identify a sassafras sapling. All of the saplings in the forest in the wintertime look remarkably the same. (laughs) And there is not a soul walking on the earth who has a more intimate life experience with sassafras than I do. And I'm telling you, it's very difficult for me in the wintertime to walk through a forest and positively identify a sassafras sapling. In the summertime, it's very easy, or even in the springtime, even in the fall. But in the dead of winter, very difficult. And I'll tell you something that's even more difficult than doing it just in the wintertime is doing it at nighttime in the wintertime. So you're using your headlamp or you're using a flashlight and you're going through the forest trying to find a sassafras sapling. Almost impossible. Almost impossible. I've done this, and so I can tell you it's almost impossible. But what I'm saying is that if you're not carrying teas, it's probably not the end of the world. There are things out there that you can make tea out of. But I always carry teas with me anyway. And if you've got the flu and you're serious sick out there, you're going to want to have teas too, along with your honey. Remember, it's a nice combination. What else? Hard candies. So... I've got some hard candies here. I'm talking about like old-timey licorice. By the way, do you know that there is not such thing as different colors of licorice? So people ask me sometimes, hey, do you like red licorice? What they're talking about is Twizzlers. There is no such thing as red licorice. What I'm saying is that there's no such thing as different flavors of licorice. Licorice is licorice. So there's no, 
black licorice is redundant. To say, hey, would you, do you like black licorice is completely redundant. There's no such thing as do you like black licorice. There's only do you like licorice. I love licorice. So I like these hard candies, which are uh, licorice flavored. Old timey, you know. Licorice, whorehound, clays, old-fashioned candies. The reason why you want these hard, old-fashioned candies is they, they soothe <clears throat> your throat. They keep your mouth, your throat moist, but they also give you energy. There's some calories in, to them. Next up, the thing you're going to want to have is uh, whiskey. Kentucky bourbon, in my preference. I realize you folks overseas there are probably preferential to uh, scotch whiskey or Irish whiskey, which is fine. Maybe some of you like Japanese whiskey, whatever you like. Now, here's what I want to say about booze and hooch. Be careful. Be careful with the booze and hooch. It's nice to have. I love booze. I love whiskey. But I've, I've tested this when I've been real sick with the flu. I tested it when I was real sick with uh, coronavirus. You only want a single shot or so. You know, you, you folks overseas also talk a lot about uh, hot toddies, right? I think that that's originated there, which is just tea with honey and uh, whiskey in it which is great, but you don't want to overdo it. When I'm really feeling miserable and sick, what I've learned is that if I overdo it, like I get to an intoxic, like I get to intoxication, then when I come down off that, I feel even worse. I'm not talking about getting dropped, you know, falling down drunk. I'm talking about just having just enough to get, to start feeling, really feeling the intoxication. Once that happens, and then that I come down off that, then I feel even worse than when before I had the tea or I drank the whiskey. So what I like to recommend with whiskey, which, it, it man, I tell you, it, it is nice to have when you're sick, but you only want about a single shot of it. So if you're going to make a cup of tea, you're going to put honey in there and everything, you're going to make a hot toddy. Just put a splash in there. It, this is just enough for soothing and relaxing. It's not for intoxication. So you have to think about what is the purpose of the whiskey in this setting. Now, if I'm healthy and feeling great and I'm not sick at all, and I'm sitting around my campfire, heck yeah, I want a little bit of intoxication. That's my purpose for drinking the whiskey. Not only just to enjoy the whiskey, I want to actually feel some intoxication. But when I've got the flu, I don't. When I've got the flu, my purpose for drinking the whiskey is to, uh, by the way, you know, you're drinking an 80 proof or 100 proof bourbon or whiskey. Uh, Think about what that's doing inside of you. That's killing all those germs and everything. So that that's something positive about it. But really what you want is you want it to soothe and relax you. You want it to kind of mellow you out so that you're not just sitting there in your misery. What you don't want is to get intoxicated by it. So, yes, whiskey is a fantastic thing. Definitely, I never leave home without it. But when you're sick, remember that the purpose of it is not to get intoxicated. It's just as truly, you know, a lot of people will laugh about this, but it truly is just for medicinal purposes. 
Remember that every day when you're sick, you've still got to get lots of calories into you. Even if you don't feel like it, you need those calories. Your body needs those calories. Even if you're just lying around sleeping, trying to sleep for two or three days, you want your body to have plenty of calories to work with. Of course, we talked about not being conservative with insulation. You want to do as much sleeping as possible until you get to a certain point where then you say, yes, now it's safe for me to pack up camp and start moving. And uh, we've talked about the ways to do that within a healthy limit. And so I think that's the conversation, everybody, about what to do. You get sick out in the middle of nowhere, some things to think about. Of course, you folks probably uh, have come up with your own things to contribute to this conversation. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing what you've got to say in the comments or over there on our exclusive group on Locals. Let's, uh, to wrap up, let's do our announcements. If you guys are just listening to this show on the podcast, be sure to subscribe to The Practical Woodsman on YouTube and Rumble. There, I have three different show types. This show, which is the podcast and is made for people to just be able to listen to me. You don't necessarily have to see me. But then I also have videos that I call exclusives. And these are where I demonstrate things. I show off things. I do some really cool things like uh, work with wild edibles, work with, uh, show you different uh, ways to save money on your sleep systems and uh, things like that. I show off gear, review gear. And then I have videos that are called adventures, and that's just me in the woods. That's what you would be watching right now if I had not got sick. So what a stinker of a thing, right? But I look forward to getting out to that area here very soon and making up for my lost week. Uh, Locals is where my exclusive online community is for if you'd like to get into some deeper conversations about the things we talk about here. Join us over there. Thepracticalwoodsman.locals.com That's L-O-C-A-L-S dot com. And, uh, or you can download the Locals.com app from the App Store and then just search for The Practical Woodsman Within. I do exclusive live streams there on Saturdays. Now, I haven't, I didn't this past Saturday because, as you could tell, I was very sick. But as often as I possibly can on Saturday mornings, I like to do live streams on our exclusive online community there on Locals. So please join us. We'll look forward to seeing you there. Folks, that's the conversation. Take care. I'll see you next time. Thank you.